so I want you to imagine that you are Wesley the farm boy, uh, dressed in black as Dread Pirate Roberts, and that the love of your life has just been kidnapped, and the bad guy is scaling the cliff up a rope, and that you are in fast pursuit behind him, just making a good pace going up that rope until Vicini gets to the top and then cuts the rope and you grab the clip just in time and you see the rope hurtling down. So I think many of you know what I'm talking about, uh, but just imagine that moment where you see the rope going down and you're hanging onto the side of this cliff. That's not a good day. Uh, now, this reminds me of our walk with Jesus, that Jesus is at the top holding the rope and we, I sometimes am just grabbing on with white knuckles for dear life and maybe even right now your knuckles are white just trying to hold on at work at home with your kids in your marriage or maybe just you're reading the bible every day and wondering how long it'll take for you to really desire Reading, and sometimes you're just wondering if you should just give up and let go. Or maybe worse, you're wondering if at any moment you're going to see that rope just hurtling down past you. Just doubting the whole thing. Maybe this can happen to us as believers. We can wonder how long it'll be before Jesus lets go of us. If you're struggling with losing hope, the answer for you is one guy, Melchizedek. You thought I was going to say Jesus, didn't you? <laughs> but if you want to know how long will Jesus hold on, you've got to understand Melchizedek. We're going to start way back in Genesis chapter 14, verse 17. We're going to land in Hebrews, but we got to start here. We need, if we're going to be able to hold on and not let go and persevere in our faith, we have to understand Melchizedek. And the context here in chapter 14 uh Abram is in the middle of the fulfillment of this blessing that God said, I'm going to bless your socks off. And he's got first so much material blessing that there's not enough room for his family to stay in one spot. So his nephew Lot goes that way and he settles near Sodom. And then those four nations are at are attacked by five other nations and get defeated. And so Abram's not, not nephew, <laughs> nephew, this lot, uh, was captured. So Abram went and rescued Lot and brought him back. And this is right after that. Chapter 14, verse 17 in Genesis. After... Abram's return from the defeat of 
Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. So, so far, what do we know about Melchizedek? Well, we know that he is a king. And this is strange because this is a, in the midst of all these Canaanite kings, we have a king who worships the God of Abraham. And not only is he a king, first of all, he's a king, which means he has authority. But he's also a priest, which means he has access. Think about what a priest is. A priest is the mediator, the go-between between God and humans. The priest represents humans as he goes into the presence of God and represents God as he relates to humans. The priest is, in a sense, grabbing God and humans and pulling us closer together and helping relationship and intimate connection be made possible. And so Melchizedek is this priest who is not only a priest, he's also a king. And by the way, this is kind of crazy because this is the first priest that we hear of in the Bible. And when we think of priests, we're usually imagining something that came after the law. The guy in the white robe with the chest piece with the 12 stones and the turban on his head that comes from Aaron, the Levites, right? This is hundreds of years before those guys. So, if you were going to give priority or assume superiority to one or the other... Would it be the one with seniority who came hundreds of years before or the one who came after? It would be the one who came first, right? That has sort of an implicit superiority. And this is going to be the argument of the author of Hebrews. That this priest who predates all priests is somehow above and superior to and is the ultimate priest. And so now look in verse 19. And imagine the posture of these two characters. Uh, Melchizedek and Abram. Look in verse 19. And Melchizedek blessed Abram and said. Blessed be Abram by God most high. Possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high. Who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything. So I see this as Melchizedek the priest giving blessing. And I see Abram giving offering. And they are at least by status, if not also by posture. Abram in inferiority or submission to Melchizedek. So, 
What we know so far about Melchizedek is that he is before and above, beyond, separate than or other than or outside of the priesthood as we know it from the law. And we're establishing a different category of a type of priest or a type of person that is greater than, superior to Abraham and by extension all the priests that come from his line. Because think about it, you've got, okay, Abraham had Isaac who had Jacob and Jacob had these sons that became the 12 tribes. One of his sons was Levi and Levi was the great-grandson of Aaron, the first priest. So Abraham, and by extension all priests, were assuming inferiority to Melchizedek, the priest, the king priest. And now the next time that we see Melchizedek, we're just gathering clues of who this guy is. Uh, the next one's going to be in Psalm 110. This is the next place that we see Melchizedek. And we've, we've got two characters. One is Melchizedek, and one that I want you to have in your mind clearly is Messiah. In all the Old Testament, there's these prophecies we're looking forward to this Messiah, this chosen one, this anointed one of God who is going to set God's people free and restore them. This Messiah is coming. And so Psalm 110 is about the coming Messiah. And it's giving us clues so that we will know who this Messiah is when he arrives. So it says, Psalm 10, verse 1, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. So here, I do need to touch on the introduction there where it says the Lord says to my Lord because this is a psalm with multiple fulfillments first in relation to David and the kingdom that God gave David but also later ultimately in the kingdom that will be given to the Messiah that comes through the line of David and so when Jesus quotes this psalm, and he does in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he quotes this psalm to set the record straight to these Pharisees and say, Guys, look, this, this psalm is telling you what the Messiah is going to be like. And first of all, that he's divine because it says, The Lord says to my Lord, which can only mean that the Father is saying to the Son of God, I'm going to give you an eternal kingdom. And he's saying this means that this Messiah is going to be divine. And by the way, I am that Messiah and I am divine. Is what Jesus interprets this as a psalm that's talking about the Messiah that is going to come, namely himself, Jesus. Jesus. 
And so, what is this message that the Lord says to the coming Messiah? He says, sit at my right hand. And isn't that a great place to sit for a king? Or someone who's sharing and ruling with. We can turn those off. I'm sorry, I, I turned those on earlier. After keep turning them off, I thought we might get lucky, but... Hit that blackout button. Okay. <laughs> so the Lord Father says to my Lord Jesus, sit at my right hand. The right hand of God is a good place. For someone to sit who has received all authority and has accomplished his work. And it's a good thing if you're reminded right now of Daniel 7, the one who approached thrones. There's one for God and at least one other waiting for the Son of Man who has accomplished his work and receives all rule and authority. So we're supposed to be seeing right now Jesus enthroned at the right hand of the Father. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. To the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter rule in the midst of your enemies. A mighty scepter and rule. This is king language. This coming Messiah is going to be king and is going to be Jesus. And then look in verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, Messiah, you, Jesus, are a priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek, or in the line of Melchizedek, or in the same category, or following the pattern of Melchizedek. So, Psalm 110 is saying, whoever Messiah is going to be, he is two things. One, he's going to be king, seated at the right hand of God, ruling, and he's going to follow the order, the category, the pattern of Melchizedek. And what is that pattern of Melchizedek? What does it look like to follow the pattern of Melchizedek? Well, remember, he's king and he's priest. And apparently he's forever. <laughs> it says here, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, which makes sense when that story from Genesis, the true story of Genesis, where Melchizedek drops in out of nowhere, a priest with no lineage, no backstory, no ongoing story, scripturally speaking, in the story of scripture, no beginning and no end. This is a timeless priest who drops in and then drops out. And in a sense, he is not anchored 
to a human lifespan the way that we are. So this pattern of Melchizedek is king and priest and forever. And you can see how this priest is better than any other priest. Which is why the author of Hebrews finds this pattern of Melchizedek very useful. Because the whole point of the book of Hebrews is three words. Jesus is better. (laughs) You have a group of people, and you can go ahead and turn there, the book of Hebrews. You've got a group of people who have come out of the old covenant law and have believed in Jesus have been delivered, have been saved, but now they're being tempted to let go of the rope because they're wondering if this Jesus thing is really all it's cracked up to be. And so the author of Hebrews is going to remind them in multiple ways, guys, Jesus is so much better than what you came from. So let's start in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. It's going to hurt me, but I'm not going to teach much on this first chunk. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Spoken to us by his son, not only through his son, but by his son. As if Jesus is the personification, he is the embodiment of the message of God. He is the word of God. He has spoken to us by his son. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Does that phrase look familiar? He sat down. At the right hand of majesty on high. We are supposed to be thinking of Psalm 110. The Messiah who is seated at the right hand. Of the majesty on high. And this phrase sat down at the right hand. Is repeated five times in the book of Hebrews. And I think I've got it up here. There we go. So you can take a glance at that. The author of Hebrews is going to great lengths to make sure that you understand where Jesus is. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. In his very near presence. Seated, settled there. He wants us to know where he is. And now look at chapter 6. Verse 13. 
Yes, I'm going to conveniently dodge the landmine of 1 through 12 that in chapter 6, talking about the people that have fallen away, which introduced lots of questions about salvation. Can we lose it? Were they saved? Were they not? I'm not going to preach that or comment on that because the point is, look in verse 9, there's a contrast, the word but. The the people that have fallen away, there's a lot of unanswered questions about that. But for you, I'm confident of salvation. And I want you to endure in your hope and your faith. I want you to cling to the rope of, of that hope and that faith so that we can move on to more mature things. So he's confident of that and wanting them to persevere in their faith and endure in their faith. And why? Why is he or what's what's he going to what motivation is he going to give them to cling to this faith and to persevere? He's going to say, well, think about Abraham. Look in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham and think Genesis 12, that's the promise that he made. Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore, this is God swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. It sounds similar to Genesis 12, but this is Genesis 22. This is an oath that he makes. So he gives not only a promise. But also an oath. And what's the result for Abraham based on those two witnesses in 15? It says, and thus Abraham having patiently waited. This means he endured and persevered in his faith. He believed and obtained the promise. So he's going to use that as analogy for his audience The author of Hebrews is going to say in the same way that Abraham with promise and oath clung and held on to and received the promise. You also have two things. You also have promise and oath. And I'm going to encourage you and beg you to hold on to your faith and not let go. So in verse 15. And thus, Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise, 16, for people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. I love that. An oath is final for confirmation. An oath is what settles the dispute. And I love that because in my mind, whenever there's a dispute on what is true and Can I really believe this? Can I keep on believing this? And when there's this back and forth in my brain, the oath of God is what settles it. What he said settles it. Especially when there's an argument in my mind between what he has said and my feelings. The oath settles it. And in verse 17... So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose. So let me just back up there. Verse 17, it says, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs. 
So who are the heirs of the promise? Look, look to your left, to your right, that's them. It's us. We are the heirs of the promise, as it says in Galatians 3. By faith, we are heirs and descendants of Abraham, recipients of the promise by faith. So God wanted to show us more convincingly. He, wanted, he gave Abraham a promise and an oath, and it says to you and I, he wants to make it even more clear. He wants to make it more sure for us. And how does he do that? He guaranteed it with an oath. So we do partake in the promises of Abraham. Namely, the blessing of Jesus. And we have an oath. What is the oath? We have to see how it plays out in the text. But he gives us two things. A promise and an oath. Why? Verse 18. So that is answering the question why. So that by two unchangeable things. In which it is impossible for God to lie. I love that. How sure are these two things? It's unchangeable. And impossible for him to lie about it. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast or persevere, cling to this hope set before us. The whole point of giving these two witnesses a promise and oath is to encourage us to continue to persevere, not just get saved. Notice where it says, we have fled Right there in verse 18, the middle of verse 18, we who have fled, that's a past tense, that's an aorist verb. We who have fled for refuge. And when we when we have fled for refuge, have we found refuge? If we go to Jesus, we have found refuge. And it says, once you have fled, that you might have, that's future, strong encouragement to hold fast. He's saying, God has made it more clear to you than he did to Abraham because he wants you not just to be saved, but to persevere and hold on to this faith. Hold on to this hope. And God has given us a promise and an oath to encourage us. Isn't that cool? How he helps us hope. Instead of just Subtly, uh, dispassionately putting it out there. Man, and how did it say in Hebrews? Through many ways, through the prophets forever, and now through Jesus, he's making it so clear and going out of his way to give us two witnesses that we can bank on a promise and an oath. He cares that we cling to the hope and helps us. Hmm. And what does our hope point to? What is the 
what is the object of our hope? Hmm. And man, I hope uh, <laughs> that the object of our hope is something substantial, something weighty, that it's not like a, a rope tied under a basket that you give a good yank and it just slides right out. Like what at, at the top of the rope of our hope, what is it there? I hope this is something substantial. What does it say? That our hope is pointed to verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. We have an anchor. And just don't miss that picture. When you've got a boat that is being tossed all over the place by the wind and the waves, it has an anchor attached to a rope at the bottom that keeps it right there. It can get tossed around, but it's not going to go miles, right? It is anchored. It is secure. And it's not moving. That anchor isn't budging. And we have, in our hope, an anchor that we're clinging to that is not ever going to budge. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. It also makes me imagine, I've never done this before, I'd like to someday to go parasailing, where you're on the end of a rope with a parachute and the rope, probably steel cable, I hope, the steel cable <laughs> down to the boat. And the idea is that this boat is not going to let go. And it's going to determine where you go and keep you anchored to relatively close to the planet. Uh, as you're just flying, the wind is throwing you all over the place. But you're tethered. You're anchored. And we have a hope that keeps us anchored. What is the anchor? We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, comma, a hope. What does the hope do? A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Okay, look at that phrase. This is, this is strange. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. A hope that enters. I, did, did the question sound strange that I began with it? I said, what does the hope do? Does hope do anything? Like it's an invisible concept, right? But here hope enters. So this is something like a personification of the object of our hope. Yeah. He's saying hope enters. But it's pointing to the object of our hope. If your hope is in Jesus, Jesus is your anchor. How did he get there? He entered in. 
is a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. All right, what's that talking about? You should be thinking of tabernacle. After they received the law, they set up this tent where the priest could go in and relate to God on their behalf and come out and relate to them on the behalf of God. So this tent was a meeting place. This is where God met with his people. So you go under the first flap and you're there and priests are in there doing stuff. And then there's another veil, a, a curtain that you go into. And this was the Holy of Holies. This is the hot spot of the presence of God. The locus of his self. The the. Ark of the Covenant had these wings that were like this throne, this mercy seat of God being present with his people. So behind, here in our verse, verse 19, the hope has entered into that inner place behind that veil. That means this hope has gone in to as close as you can possibly get to God himself. We should be thinking tabernacle. We should be thinking the temple. And we should be thinking Jesus. The object of our hope. That went in to the presence of God on our behalf. And look at verse 20. This place behind the curtain. This is where Jesus has gone. As a forerunner on our behalf. Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. He went, if he's a forerunner, he went first and then we all go after him, right? But we don't go before him. We can't go without him, but he went as our forerunner. This is going to be a risky illustration, but this made me, I was watching the Lord of the Rings with the boys last night. And... It reminded me of one of one of these attacks whenever they had the good guys sieged in this fortress. One of the most gnarly bad guys got strapped up with something kind of like dynamite and just ran for the opening gate and threw himself in and blew it up and then they all went in. So this makes me think of Jesus, okay? So Jesus went on this kamikaze mission into the heart of the sacrificial system. He went in as the ultimate priest making the ultimate sacrifice, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood. He said, I'm going to go in, and not just on the outskirts where the regular priests go, but I'm going to go all the way in where the high priests go, and I'm going to offer my own life, my own blood, and it will kill me. And Jesus ran in there, hurling himself into a place where some would argue he doesn't belong, and it killed him. And then he stood up and just shook it off, and he blew up the whole sacrificial system from the inside out, and said, now there's a new and living way. Through Christ alone, our forerunner. He went into the presence of God, and now we get into the presence of God through him. Our forerunner. Our unshakable, unbudgeable hope.
verse 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, we've introduced this word high priest. It just said priest. In Psalm 110, but now high priest, high priest is the guy that could go in. He's the only one that could go into the second curtain, the Holy of Holies. And he could only go once a year. And even that, he had to fill the place with smoke to sort of mitigate the direct contact with the presence of God and still hope he didn't die. The whole thing was very tenuous. And Jesus was this high priest who went in. And accomplished real intimacy, perfect intimacy, perfect closeness with God himself. And he is a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then I've got these other verses up on the screen. The references to Jesus being in the order of Melchizedek six times referenced here in in the book of Hebrews, because he wants to make sure that you know not only where Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, but he also wants you to know, this sounds kind of weird, but he wants you to know when he is. Because if he's in the order of Melchizedek, he is a forever high priest. When is Jesus? He's forever. When is he there? Forever. When's he going to not be there? Never. <laughs> When's he going to let go? Never. He's in the order of Melchizedek. A high priest forever. And now in chapter 7 verse 1. He's going to spell out a little bit more of this likeness between Melchizedek and Jesus. Chapter 7 verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem... Priest of the Most High God met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, King of Righteousness. That's what Melchizedek means. King of Righteousness. Does that remind you of anybody? Yeah. King of Righteousness. And then he is also King of Salem, which means peace. The king, or you could say prince of peace. Does that remind you of anyone? He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. So now he flips it to kind of say not only is Jesus like Melchizedek, but Melchizedek is like Jesus but resembling the Son of God. So evidently Melchizedek is not the ultimate priest. The Son of God is. Yeah, amen. And see, it does stretch my brain as it talks about Melchizedek like being without end and being this timeless priest. What are, how are we supposed to read Genesis? Is he... Is he like, is he a physical human guy? Is he a pre-incarnate Christ showing up there? Is he an apparition? Is he somehow multiple of those or none of those? I, I don't know. But I, I do know 
that the point is we're supposed to look at Melchizedek and learn something about Jesus. We, what we do know about Melchizedek, he's a priest, he's a king, and he's forever. And the author of Hebrews is saying that's a pretty good description of Jesus. Priest, king, forever. Verse 4, see how great this man was to whom Abraham, we're in chapter 7, verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. Now look at verse 9. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. Like when Abraham gave to Melchizedek, it's like saying Levi and the whole priestly line was in submission to Melchizedek. It's just reiterating that Jesus is the ultimate high priest like Melchizedek over all. And verse 10, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So don't miss also what's going on here is that Melchizedek represents a priest who grants access to God outside of the law. And that's really good news. If my only access to God is through the Levitical system or through the law, I'm toast. But it turns out Jesus is a better, different way through faith. Apart, apart from the law. And beyond human lineage and human effort. So if, if Jesus is in the Melchizedek category, this means he's a whole different kind of priest, which includes a totally different kind of appointment and a different kind of qualification for how he gets appointed. Let's look at how Jesus was qualified for his appointment as high priest. It says in verse 16, who, this is talking about Jesus, Jesus has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent. That's what the Levitical priests were. Are you in the line? No, it says, but, this is a contrast. Here's how he became a priest. But by the power of an indestructible life. I love this. An indestructible life. A life that cannot be destructed. It's so good. Have any of you had offspring or nephews that had, as toddlers, their foreheads were just indestructible? Like that they were just, they could be bouncing off of walls or maybe putting holes through them. And you think, how? This thing is in, impenetrable. And so is the life of Jesus. And notice, I, I love the specificity that it's not that Jesus in his incarnation was indestructible. He allowed himself to undergo destruction. But the life of Jesus is indestructible. You can kill him, he just won't stay dead. And he will never die again. He lives. 
by the power of an indestructible life. And so verse 17, for it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever. He quotes this. This is again a quote from Psalm 110. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This is how he can be a priest forever. This indestructible life. Look at verse 21. But this one was made a priest with an oath. By the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and it will not and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. All right. Here's the oath. Remember, we knew the promises. We get to share in the promises of Abraham, which is blessing of Jesus. But then also the oath. What is the oath? It's right here. The oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So the oath is Jesus is priest and nothing's ever going to change that. That's the oath. And what's so cool about this? Like, remember, he, he wanted to go above and beyond how he encouraged Abraham with a promise and an oath. Now he also gives us that same promise. But this oath is not an oath that he made to you and me. This is an oath that he made to Jesus. And this oath he made to Jesus is you're forever. Your rule and your reign is forever. You're a high priest forever. So the fuel for our faith that we cling to and never let go is this. We are heirs of the promise. And God made an oath to Jesus that you are forever high priest. I can't think of anything that I could bank on more than an oath that the father makes to the son. You're a priest forever. Verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Why? Because he doesn't die. Verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. So here's this conclusion of what's the result of Jesus being a priest forever? Why does this matter? Why is it significant that he is seated at the right hand of the Father as high priest forever and nothing will ever change that? And he's settled and you can't, he won't budge, he's anchored there. What's the significance of that? Verse 25, Hallelujah. consequently, Hallelujah. he is able to save to the uttermost. Or you, your translation might say completely. He is able to save completely those who draw near to God through him. And some of you struggle to believe that he can save you completely. Like, yeah, I know, I know I'm going to be there someday, but I'm, I don't know if he can save me from this. Struggle, this lie, this tendency. If he's going to fix this one, it's going to take some time. Well, he's going to be there forever. <laughs> and he is able to save completely because he's not going anywhere. Amen. Now, that phrase, those who, it functions like if. 
he's able to say completely if you draw near to God through Jesus. If you're not, if you're trying to draw near to Jesus through any other way, there is zero confidence for you. But if you're drawing near through Jesus, we have confident assurance, confident access to the throne through our forerunner, Jesus. He's always there. It makes me think of when you see in the movies whenever they shoot a grappling hook like up over a wall and this sort of flying anchor goes where you want to go and then hooks up and then the mechanism like pulls you up to it. This is what it makes me think of that Jesus is that anchor in the very near presence of God and he's pulling us in and completely saving us, but only if you're in Christ. If the object, if that anchor is Jesus, and your hope is in Him, nothing's going to stop Him from saving you completely. And how is this possible? What, What makes this possible? Look at that next word, since. Because it says, he, consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since, this is what makes it possible, he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives. He's always there forever. You will never pull up the security camera footage in the near presence of God, the throne of Jesus and see it vacant and go, where's Jesus? He's on a break. It's never going to happen. He's there forever at the right hand of the Father enthroned. He always lives. What's he doing there at the right hand of the Father? Making intercession for them. He's in his throne next to the Father Saying, Father, look look at Gretchen. She's righteous. She's mine. And he's your advocate. And he's shooting down lies that the enemy's bringing against you. And he's saying, Father, he's mine. Answer his prayers, Father. Make him more like me. Draw him closer. He's always living to do that. Always lives to make intercession. So if you're, if you're doubting and you're wondering if I just need to let go of the rope or wondering how long Jesus is going to hold on, the answer for you is Melchizedek. Priest, king, forever. Jesus really is a priest who has access. He really is king who has all authority. He's really there. Forever. When will it let go? Never. Amen. Some of you have played tug of war before, and there's always that thought of how 
long or how hard should I pull? Because if they decide to let go, I'm going to look like an idiot. <laughs> and if you're ever wondering, how long should I let go? Am I going to be made a fool? He who trusts in the Lord will not be disappointed. He's never, ever, ever going to let go. And that's why chapter 12, this is our conclusion. Look at chapter 12. This is how he's, he's starting to wrap up the book here in chapter 12. And we're going to wrap up here. Therefore, chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That's that we persevere, we endure in our faith, that we don't stop. But we don't hold on to the feeling. We hold on to the rope. We hold on to Jesus, our hope, our anchor. We're holding on to him. The endurance, the race set before us, verse 2, looking to or having our eyes fixed on Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. If we want to persevere in our faith, we have to have our eyes fixed on Jesus and know he's not going anywhere. I have to amend my whole visual a little bit. We're not, we're not clinging onto the rope white knuckling it. <laughs> it's like Jesus like duct taped our hands to it or glued, super glued or made this little basket for us that we're just chilling at the bottom of the rope and he is reeling us in to make us more like him and closer and closer to the presence of God and the likeness of his very own righteousness this is what we have to choose if we're going to continue to believe and hold on to or not. He does it. He is trustworthy. He is our hope. Forever interceding. Forever saving us completely. Let's pray. Lord Jesus. Thank you for not only being able, but actually saving us completely. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.